wonderful, majestic world around us. It's time for Dear Science. Thanks to MOTAT, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow. Alrighty, kia ora, Ellen. <laughs> Hi, Millie, how are we? We're good, we're okay. good. A little wet. Yes, yes, we know all about that, sadly. So, um, yes, as one of the Elton John attendees on Friday, yes, I know all about that. But mm, you must be gutted. Uh, yeah, oh, well, I've seen him before, so, you know, but, um, yeah, it was it was pretty awful and getting back was fun, but by crikey, we're a hell of a lot better, else, better off than an awful lot of people. So, if you've mm. been affected out there, um, really and honestly, our thoughts are with you because... Yeah, it's just a terrible, terrible situation. Mm. Should we distract them with a little bit of science? Why not? <laughs> Spe speaking of terrible situations, which we often do on Dear Science, so oh. we are going to go to Australia, and specifically to Western Australia, where they are missing some cesium-137. <laughs> now, I did see this, and I had a little giggle, because by the looks of the article, they've gone, oh, whoops. Yeah, we don't know where it is. Yeah, ba pretty much that. And so this this stuff, cesium-137, so very radioactive uh, isotope, and they use it for uh, calibrating radiation detection equipment, in, uh, and which they use in mines, which they've got lots of, obviously, in Western Australia. And so this thing, it's around about, well, it's six millimetres by eight millimetres, so it's not really big. It's tiny. Um, but if you go and pick it up, it might not be the best thing in the world for you because um, all the reports say that it's sort of emitting radiation which is roughly around about equivalent to 10 X-rays in an hour. So, Ooh. you know, that's really not good. You can imagine if you um, are in possession of it for any length of time, it's not going to do you any good at all. So, obviously, they're not too thrilled about this and they are launching or they have launched after a week not knowing that they'd actually <laughs> lost this thing it did literally fall off the back of the truck um so they're looking for this thing over a 1400 kilometer stretch of road and um. you'd think the chances of finding it would not be great you know the one good thing about it is it does emit lots of radiation so they could sort of detect it yeah that's what i was thinking but and again as they say it could have got lodged in somebody else's tire or something like that and just you know it could be you know miles away, well kilometers sorry should i say away and you know from from where they think it is so they really have no idea where it is and they're busy looking for it now, that, you know, and again, lots of people saw this in the news, and I thought, oh, you mm. know, that's blah, blah, blah. It led me to do a little bit of investigation, and I came across this thing called the Kramatorsk Radiological Incident, oh. which, was, which is not dissimilar to this. And so here's, here's the dear science thing for the day, okay? So way back in the late 70s, back when the USSR was still the USSR, mm. And the Ukraine was part of the USSR. So there was a quarry uh, in a town in Ukraine, okay, and they used a similar capsule, you know, so they had mm. a, a similar capsule full of cesium-137, this radioactive nucleus, and, you know, using it for the same sort of thing, and again, they lost it. And they looked for it for a week, and they couldn't find it, and so they thought, oh, well, bugger it. You know, we, we, we won't worry about it. Now, this quarry um, was used for gravel to um, construct 
buildings. Okay, so gravel mm. for construction, basically. So, you know, and cement, all, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right, so we go forward to about 1980 in a town called Kramatorsk in Ukraine. And um, somebody or a family moves into an apartment building, mm-hmm. as they had in the USSR in those days. And um, sadly, very quickly, um, two children die of leukemia. Okay, one mm. after the other, and then the mother dies of leukemia after that. Now, they're all in the same apartment building, mm. and nobody thought this was particularly weird. They just thought it must have been, you know, bad genetics or something like that. Mm. So that family moved out. Another family then moved in, and the son of that family died of leukemia, and his brother got very, very, very ill, and the father thought, oh, hang on, there's something horribly wrong here. And so they wanted to get the apartment checked for all sorts of things because obviously weird things were happening in that apartment. They did, and guess what they found in the wall of the apartment? That good old cesium-137. good old cesium-137. So that little capsule of cesium-137 had basically been cemented into the wall. Oh, that's terrible. I know. It's utterly horrible. And so this is over a period of... Um, I think it took altogether about nine years for them to find this stuff. Wow. And, you know, the, the, there was a bedroom right next to this lump of radioactive material. So I so mean, it's really quite powerful. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So the stuff they lost off the back of the truck in Australia, it's about, in terms of activity, it's about four times less than, than this one in Ukraine. But still, you know, that's, you know, you stay next to that for any length of time it's going to do you serious harm i hope it's not in anyone's like jacket pocket something like that well you know i i I don't know you know are they going to keep looking for it until they find it or are they going to give it up as a bad joke and just think well you know it's not going to cause anybody any morally problems but you know when when, they need to find it yeah i think they kind of do really so Mm -hmm. um yeah scary scary stuff scary cesium yeah (laughs) and speaking of hazardous substances yes indeed have we got another fun one here's a a segue okay (laughs) (laughs) well would you would you call cancer a hazardous substance that's that's the thing Mm, that's true. <laughs> so we're going to talk about cancer now and how mm. you go about detecting cancer. Because the one thing you want to do with cancer is detect it early because it gives you so much uh, better chance of um, being able to be treated, obviously. Mm. So normally, in terms of detecting cancer, what you have to use is or are machines, mm-hmm. essentially. So... Um, you you know MRI scans and CT scans, or you know all all of those sorts of things, all of those big expensive things that you only get in you know well-equipped hospitals in decent-sized cities. Totally. And it would be better if maybe there was an easier, cheaper, quicker way to detect cancer. So, in Germany, these people have taken up the challenge, um, and. <laughs> You're going to laugh at this, I tell you. <laughs> what they are using is ants. Right? <laughs> They're using ants to detect cancer, okay? Uh, okay, that's a new one. <laughs> well, I mean, it's well known, and indeed we've talked on the show about um, various animals and stuff that um, can be trained to detect cancer. Totally. Um, you know, like dogs and stuff. And, uh, we talked about something recently, and I can't remember what it was, some unusual animal they were training up. But, mm. um, but anyway... Um, so obviously, you know, 
animals, insects, whatever, they've got decent olfactory systems and can smell particular compounds, um, you know, they could be useful in detecting cancer. And so these folk in um, Germany, they know, and well, I guess as many cancer specialists do, that tumour cells emit um, volatile organic compounds, okay? Yes. So, and particular uh, volatile organic compounds that are peculiar to cancer cells. So if you can somehow sniff those things at very, very, very low levels, obviously, then you're going to be all good. So what they did is that they got some mice, they got some cancer-infected mice, and don't ask me how they got them because you don't want to know. Cause, <laughs> uh, Anyway, does it, does it involve little? Uh... Yeah, we don't want to know. Don't we? <laughs> no, oh, gra grafting tumours onto them. I know, I know, I know, I know. I couldn't do all that, but I'm just a chemist. Anyway, so what they did <laughs> is that they collected the urine from these uh, cancerous mice, mm. and then they got 35 ants. 35? 35, 35, exactly. Yes, 35 ants. And what they did was that they sort of left them in the vicinity of, of the urine, sort of to, to, mm. to get used to it. And then, as a treat, they gave them a piece of sugar. Oh, nice. Okay. So basically they're sort of training them. It's, it's, it's good old Pavlov's dog, really, except on a, on a smaller scale. Okay, you know, ring the bell, start salivating sort of thing. Stay next to um, cancerous urine, if we can call it that, <laughs> get a sugary treat. Okay. Oh. And so they did this a few times. And in fact, they only did this for 10 minutes. It only took 10 minutes. 10 minutes. To train the ants to smell this cancerous urine. And then they did the experiment, so they took normal urine from the mouse and the cancerous urine, and they put the ants in the vicinity of both of them. And the ants that have been trained spent, and it doesn't sound huge, but it's 20% more time next to the um, urine from the cancerous mice than from the normal mice. That's amazing. And it only took 10 minutes. Which to me is absolutely astonishing. I mean, you know, in terms of training, you know, like drug training or mm. training drug dogs and things like that. I mean, that's, oh gosh, that's that's at least months, I think, isn't it? The um, sniffer dogs at the airports, yeah, they're yeah. like <clears throat> a couple of years, I think. Oh gosh, that long, yeah. To yeah. fully do mm. drug detection. So here you go, ants in 10 minutes. <laughs> and they can statistically differentiate between... You know, cancerous and non-cancerous. Now, there's a whole lot of caveats to this, as there often are in these sort of preliminary studies. Um, the mice are all identical, absolutely identical. They'd all been fed the same stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there weren't too many variables there. Right. Um, unlike, let's say, a human, uh, who are all going to be different. They're going to have different diets, different this, that, and everything, which is going to lead to different odours, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it is kind of the proof of principle. Yeah, because um, you often hear of, like, people who get cancer and their family dog mm, spends yes. a lot of time yep. around them and acts a bit funny. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so interesting. And, I mean, you know, what this shows is that we've still got an awful lot to know about um, you know, about so much. And the weird thing, ants don't have noses. Who knew? What? <laughs> <laughs> ants, ants do not have noses and they can detect smells through their antennae on their heads. Wow. So there we go. We've all learned something. There you go. Today, unless there are some particular etymologists, entomologists, not etymologists, entomologists out there. Yeah. Um, Text in. Yes. Yeah. Through <laughs> If listening, you know, <laughs> and and you, you were you were you were already keenly aware of the cancer detecting properties of ants. You can you can angrily text in. <laughs> yeah. More than welcome. Oh uh, dear. And okay. So finally, um, what's the biggest extinction event on Earth? There we go. 
the latest permian. Oh, stop oh. Come on, you're not allowed to answer that because you'd read it. But before you read it, what would what would you have said? Uh, the dinosaurs. Right, the dinosaurs, exactly. And that's mm. what I would have said as well. It's the whole dinosaur thing. Remember there was an asteroid that hit the Earth that was about 10 or 15 kilometres in diameter and it crashed in the Yucatan Peninsula and the dinosaurs were all gone. And again, I would have thought that that was the biggest mass extinction event on planet Earth. It turns out it's not. That only <gasps> killed 75% of everything on Earth. The one that we're going to talk about killed between 80 and 90% of everything on Earth. Everything. That is so, so much. So plants and animals, okay? Wow. And you might think, well, that's, you know, that's massive. It must have been a bigger asteroid or something like that. Hell no, it wasn't. What okay. happened? Aha! You didn't read the whole article. <laughs> I read the okay. first bit. <laughs> so what happened was volcanoes. Yes. Okay. So this was around about 250 million years ago. Okay. So the dinosaurs were 66 million years ago. This was 250 million years ago. Wow. And so... Basically, what happened was that they had these huge volcanic, or this huge volcanic activity in um, what we call now Siberia. But remember, the old sort of continents were moving around and everything, so the, the world looked a bit different than it does today. But there were massive, massive, um, or massive volcanic activity way back then. Now, what scientists have been able to do up until now is to precisely date that at, let me get my piece of paper, 251.9 million years ago. Okay? Wow. 251.9 million years ago. And they do this from sediment records in the ocean. Mm. Okay, And they are pretty precise because whatever goes in the ocean, it gets covered by mud very, very quickly and you get a, a, a good recording of what's happening. And, and then you just build up layers and layers and layers and layers of sediment and as you drill through them, you get essentially a continuous record of the things that have been going on. Now, on land, that doesn't necessarily work so well. Mm, no, okay? it doesn't. Because you um, can get things moving around on land, you've got uh, outside process, you've got you know wind, you've got erosion, all that sort of thing. Mm. So you don't necessarily really get great records of these things on land. And so up until now, scientists thought, right, 251.9 million years ago, that's when this whole thing happened. However, so these folks, it's a bunch of folk in China and South Africa and the UK and the US, they have been looking at um, this particular extinction event and they've been looking at mercury isotopes, isotopes of mercury, because when these volcanoes started going, obviously they pump out lava, they pump out a truckload of CO2, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. a truckload of methane, both of them greenhouse gases, and that's what led to the extinction, essentially. Oh, There's all, really? <clears throat> all of these greenhouse gases going to the atmosphere and we got lots and lots and lots of warming. Right. Okay, mass extinction, 80 to 90%. And what they were looking at were these isotopes of the element mercury that also came out of the volcanoes in, remember, Siberia. And um, what they were looking for was somewhere on the planet Earth, somewhere on, on the actual Earth, not under the sea, mm. where you got a good record of um, sediments and stuff, okay, on land. And they found a couple of places, one in, the, uh, in South Africa and one in Australia, Yay. and they're looking at the um, distribution of these um, mercury isotopes in uh, these two places in Australia and in South Africa. 
Right, so long story short, what they found was <laughs> that these sediments on land, they reckon, or they, they show, in fact, that the volcanic eruptions took place 200,000 to 600,000 years before the 251.9 million years that they dated using the um, underwater sediments, okay? So what that is saying is that this mass extinction event wasn't a big whammy one-time thing like the asteroid was that killed all the dinosaurs. It wasn't a It symbol. wasn't wham-blam. No, it wasn't wham-blam, exactly. So what obviously happened was a gradual process, gradual, gradual heating over this period of two to 600,000 years following these volcanic eruptions. And then eventually what you see in the record from sediments under the sea is, the, is, is basically the tipping point where it all went to crap and um, even and and you know all the bad stuff got into the sea, and you've got the record from these um, underwater sediments. So this is kind of a big deal because it um, has relevance today with the whole um, climate change, global warming sort of thing. Totally. Here, here we have a situation where um, you know they were putting. Well, the volcanoes were putting all of this stuff into the atmosphere, your CO2s and your methanes and stuff, and just showing that, you know, this is not a good thing. This is what can happen if it goes unchecked. And, you know, maybe we should all start taking notice, especially given the events of Friday and last weekend. And I'd say so. Yeah. 80 to yeah. 90% is not a good fact and figure. No. And and you think about that, 80 to 90%, and that means that the dinosaurs then evolved over that period of From what would be 100, 190 million years, you know, which doesn't seem to be very long, no. really, in, in sort of Earth-type terms anyway. So, yeah, fasc wow. fascinating stuff. Um, as usual this week, I've learned a lot through reading up about all of these stories. Yeah. I hope you folk out there have also as well. And as we should always say, thank you to Motat because they do a great job sponsoring yes. us and thank you very much. Thank you, Alan, and thank you, Motat, and thank you, Science. <laughs> well, I didn't know that before. Dear Science, thanks to Motat, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow.